Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode we're talking about mental health. Young people's experiences of mental health is now a priority issue at all levels of education. We're seeing rising levels of depression and anxiety amongst every age group, with key issues ranging from rising levels of study stress and cyberbullying through to ongoing anxieties around global events such as climate change and COVID-19. These are tough times and charities such as Beyond Blue estimate that one in four young Australians are currently experiencing some sort of mental health condition. So in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, we're talking with Christine Grove from Monash University. Christine is gaining a stellar reputation for her varied research focusing on young people, schools and mental health. So in this conversation, we talk about Christine's growing interest in participatory approaches to researching with young people, as well as her specific project exploring innovative interventions involving everything from having therapy dogs in the classroom through to developing therapeutic chatbots. But to start off with, I asked Christine to give us some background and outline the big mental health issues currently facing young people in schools. Some of the the really big issues is probably a massive increase that we're seeing in mental health um, risks of young people in education. So we are seeing an incline. Um, in the mental health of uh, this next generation coming through. And I do perceive that that happening as well um, in the future, given the changes in the environment and the context. And I think it's really complex um, issues that we have in society. How do you respond to people's well-being and mental health and support them throughout the education? So, and there we seeing an increase. I think that's quite a big issue uh, for schools because teachers aren't trained in that, nor should they be. Um, of course, trained in terms of having mental health information and knowledge, but not actually offering interventions and psychological support directly for our most at-risk young people. They need school psychologists um, versus chaplains who are experts and trained for you know over four to six years to be able to offer that kind of support mm. in a very specialist space. So um, we're talking about anxiety, stress. I'm, I'm interested in the actual mm. kind of specific mental health issues that are being presented. Our most common that we see um, is anxiety and depression. And that can be related to study stress, study exams, climate anxiety and nervousness around those changes and inaction in that space, um, as well as family breakdowns or not having good relationships at school. So really commonly um, we see bullying happening online. You know, we see a lot of commentary on that. And so this kind of complex situations impact the young person's experience. Yeah, and we've heard a lot of a lot about kind of online bullying, cyberbullying, climate anxiety recently in the media by politicians. I mean, from an expert point of view, do you think these heightened areas of attention are leading to improvements? I mean, are people talking about the right things? It definitely is fantastic to have more awareness and more discussion around that. Um, but I know that the World Health Organization recently released some really interesting information around we're in an info pandemic, pandemic, an info pandemic where there's just so much information online, what is genuine, what is accurate, what is correct, and how do young people find correct information online. So quite a big issue is actually young people going to blogs like Tumblr and finding not helpful ways to cope, Mm. like self-harm, drinking, et cetera. So we do need and we do have an accountability to be able to provide accurate information. So yeah, more information is great, but the quality of that is important. Yeah, and those are big, big issues. They're that huge all... issues, bigger than just psychology field. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, theoretically then, I mean, 
obviously you've got your methods in one hand on the flip side of methods is theory. I mean, what theoretical approaches are you using to address this area? I mean, do you follow a particular tradition or a particular theoretical approach? It's so interesting you, you ask that um, because for me, I, I more look at more of a practical, two practical theorists, so Hart and Shia, who look at participation and level of participation of young people in research. Um, and so I use that as my main, my main theory, theoretical lens. I haven't engaged really heavily with large theorists um, that, there, that there is an education um, and mine's much more about how can we authentically engage with young people in their experiences to create social change. Mm. I was talking to Kelly Ann Allen in a previous podcast and she was coming up with the idea of the pracademic, I mean, yeah. half practitioner, half academic, which, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing these days. It is. And it's, um, and it's brilliant, I think, to actually be able to bridge some of those gaps. I and mean, previously, we didn't have people who are working in the field in schools, the school psychologists, then doing the research that we're doing now to unpack and understand what is happening in these complex environments. A lot of people would like to say that oh, well, it's just bullying that's triggering the mental health increase or technology and, and put the blame into one one area. But after you know, researching with many, many hundreds and hundreds of young people over a series of at least seven years now, it is most certainly an, a mix of impacts mm. that are happening in their lives that are triggering things like anxiety and depression. Um, and we're getting better at identifying it and measuring it. Um, but at the same time, we're having different risks than we've ever had before. And you found this out over a series of projects. It's not that you've just done one project yeah. again and again. I mean, I'm really interested in the breadth of stuff you've done looking at young people and mental health. So, I mean, what projects have you done that have kind of led you to this conclusion? So, yeah, so lots of lots of um, really interesting projects. I'd probably say um, the current one that I'm doing brings all of that work together, um, and that's establishing this youth reference group mm. um, that are funded by the Monash Education Small Grant. And that is basically this incredible group and varied group of young people from diverse backgrounds and experiences coming together. Um, and sort of we're going through all of the research that I've done and, and bringing some consensus to that to that information. So, um, so we've had four workshops so far. And we have the two-hour sessions. And so, yeah, I've brought our previous data, you know, we're reviewing it, looking at the methods I used. Were, were they actually inclusionary of young people? Was I doing the right things in that research to get their voice? Um, and then we actually trialled the visual research methods um, as well within that youth reference group, building on some of that work. And the themes that have been generated have been incredibly insightful and interesting um, and they have a, a very interesting and cool voice to share within that. So without wishing to spoil the launch of this, can you give <laughs> us some teasers as to the kind of things they were saying about your research? Um, yeah, absolutely. So a few a few things. And, and you know what's really interesting is we also did, um, we've done a video series with that. So you can actually watch that video series and get it straight from the youth themselves, which is, is, which is fantastic. So part of um, this project was also getting them to be able to share their voice if they chose to and if they wanted to. Um, and in that um, short film that we'll be launching, they, they do talk about this in detail. So I'll, a, a quick overview would be something like, you know, I can't believe that you would even want to hear from us. Right. I can't believe that researchers would think that we have a voice to share. And then they would say things like, "Where, you know, if you're a scientist researching rabbits, you'd have rabbits in the room, wouldn't you? Mm. So we're young people and we're having all these decisions made about us, not necessarily for us, and we're not at the table. And so this this exhibition will be really interesting for them to share those messages. And it's not done in a really argumentative way. It's actually done in a really, this is where we're at right now. Mm. And we should actually be key stakeholders at the table. And, and being part of this project helped them have that voice. And that was something as a researcher to really need to see because it is bridging my clinical practice, what I'd see in schools, 
you know, supporting young people to then bringing that voice into research as well. But presumably we can't just engage young people in a tokenistic way. The idea of being a stakeholder in a school or a family means something quite different when you're a young person as opposed to a teacher or a parent. That's exa- exactly right. And so a lot of actual research I do see is quite tokenistic. Um, and the level of engagement of young people is on quite a superficial stage. Um, and that's why looking at those two theoretic theorists I mentioned, Hart and and Shia are fantastic ways to assess whether your research actually is um, engaging with that young person in the way that is best directed at supporting them in that circumstance or situation. Mm. It, it is a lot harder, I think, for, for governments and funding bodies to be able to get an active group um, of young people because things that you know a lot of people don't consider is how they're going to get there, who's going to pay for their dinner, how will they be reimbursed for their time. And that takes it into an authentic collaboration where actually they are participants and engaging and those things should be considered. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's an overview of your whole research career today. I'm really interested whenever I speak to anyone about their PhD research, because I think the PhD research really shapes what you do in your future. Chris, I mean, what was your PhD about? What were you trying to do? You know, what's really interesting. Um, My PhD research was using a mixed methods approach, which is quite interesting, whereas I'm now much more qualitative than, than I've been before. Um, And I'm probably doing the research now that I wish I could have done during my PhD journey, (laughs) which is interesting in itself. But my PhD was um, looked at and developed three interventions for a vulnerable group in the community, um, children of parents with mental illness, and then look at their experiences and outcomes of those supports specifically. Um, And so I used, you know, interviews and surveys to do that. Um, And I did, I think I interviewed over 100 young people in that that project in, in my PhD and that ranged from eight years old right up until 18, 17 to 18 years old as well. And so the ethics of that must have been quite interesting in terms of parents with mental illness experiences. I mean, were you getting consent from the parents to talk to the children? Were there any issues there in the practicalities of doing that research? Absolutely. So parents are the gatekeepers um, for, for these young people, definitely. And also the fact that they'll be talking about their personal experiences of their parent who's unwell mm. and the impact that that has for them. So in terms of that, yes, we, I had to use a long sort of time period for data collection and I had to speak to every parent. Yeah. So they got to know me, they checked me out, they knew who I was. Um, a lot looked me up online. Um, so making sure I had a credible you know, presence um, that I'm not just a random person asking their, their child questions. Um, and I'd send a few through so they'd know the kinds of questions being asked. Um, and in response, I had one family email me and say that from just our interview with the interview I had with their child, they actually now understand depression in a, in a lot in a different way yeah. just by asking questions and normalizing that conversation around mental health. And I think we can easily underestimate just having a conversation around mental health with young people and youth and children. Um, and we often make it about the adult experience. Yeah. And from a research point of view, establishing trust and going in with, with good intentions. I mean, yeah. So other bits of research that you're kind of quite well known for, particularly within the faculties, your research with chatbots and animal assisted interventions. I mean, really interested in those sorts of, I mean, they're, they're different things, but I guess they're addressing similar issues. They, they all have a very similar vein. So they're all interventions. So my PhD focused on intervention research. Um, and so these are the, the chatbot work, um, as well as the animal assisted therapy um, programs and that work is also an inter- type of intervention. Mm. So part of, part of my work is looking at different ways we can actually address the crisis of mental health increasing and how we can address the challenges um, within that. So we do need to look at novel and different ways um, to address that within our school system. And so that's what led me to creating and developing um, a chatbot um, and that's actually, we're very close to releasing that soon. I've got a group of clinicians working on it this week um, who are just interacting with the chatbot to see and, and train it up and see its responses. 
the biggest challenge with that is that it just, it's never going to be perfect. That mm. one, That's going to be a career project because as soon as new interactions interact with Ash, it, it changes its responses um, and how safe is it really? Yeah. Whereas dogs, on the other hand. Everyone loves a dog. Most people love a dog. Um, most do. Um, and so that's just a different way of engaging with, with a young person and getting them to actually talk and, and build a relationship mm. um, with either a clinician or a service um, or the wellbeing team. So my doctoral research identified that young people don't want to go to the wellbeing team at school. They don't want to talk about what's happening at home or their personal circumstances necessarily. They're least likely to seek help in adolescence for their mental health. And so having a dog in the school bridges that um, for some and supports that connection. And a bot on the screen as well. And exactly, why not? And, and it, I, you know, in my ideal circumstance, a bot would be used with the wellbeing team in a school, never in isolation, and it would be managed by the school psychologist. Mm. So, for example, when I was working in a school, Neil, I had six months wait list for students to come in um, to, to see me. And so within that, not all of them need to see, you know, a school psychologist. Some of, some things can actually be managed with accurate information. Um, and so something like a chatbot could be able, could provide that information while I'm also managing um, that referral yeah. as well with that student. So it's not going to replace the therapist or the school psychologist? Never. I don't think technology ever could. <laughs> you can never replace face-to-face -face communication. So they say. <laughs> so finally, I mean, finally... If you had a million dollars, or if I gave you a million dollars, what would be your dream research project? I mean, what would you love to do? No strings attached. No strings attached. It would probably run a, an Australian-wide um, youth participatory research project where we get voices from every group in Australia, every every society, every every state, every every community that we can um, to have a voice um, and to share their experiences of education for, for social change and then bring them to the conferences and, and key meetings with stakeholders as well as collaborators. That would be a brilliant project. Um, but that kind of work would take, you know, decades to mm. be able to do. And even a million dollars might not be enough. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like you probably need a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Maybe a billion. That would be great. <laughs> but it sounds like the kind of thing that actually is really, really important. The number of conferences I've been to about young people where they may wheel in a token young person at one event just to say something. Um, we can do better than that. Absolutely. And actually with the, the youth reference group that I'm working with at the moment, they said, I said, oh, you know, you know, conferencing, if you'd like to go to any of those, there's those options. And I thought, oh, you might not want to. They're quite academic, so to speak. And they, all of them said, all 10 of them said, I oh, would absolutely love to come. Wouldn't it make more sense for us to be there to talk about this work and talk about what we've been doing um, and our voice in this? And I said, oh, absolutely, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. So it's not like they don't want to come. It's about how do we actually engage with those perspectives and those voices to include them in our academic conversations. Conference organisers take note. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Neil. Excellent. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk. It's been great to hear about your work. Thanks, Neil. It's so awesome that you've invited me here today. It's oh, been nice. No worries. <laughs> thanks a lot.